Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. It's good to see all you this morning. Hope you're well. Hope you're excited and expectant for God to move in our midst today. Um, did you all enjoy last week with, with Dr. D? Uh, what a gift. What a gift she is to me and to us. And she will be around uh, at different times throughout the year teaching for us and, and bringing a word. She's an anointed, powerful, and prophetic woman. And uh, I, I just thought that she did a great job of breaking a little bit of ground last week. You know, often I think we have to break ground before seed can be sown. There is this call as the people of God often where we have to say, God, would you break up the fallow grounds of our heart, break up the fallow ground of our soul so that seeds might would um, bring forth new life and fruit. I thought Corey said it perfectly all through the week, saying our time together last week was just a sip. It was just a taste, just a sip, just a a sample of glory, a sip of the manifest presence of God. And you know when you go to Costco and they got samples? You know why they have samples? So you want more. (laughs) That's a good word. A taste, a sip makes you want more. And I believe last week was a, a sip. And I hope that we were able to experience God in really beautiful and powerful ways. And we have come this morning expecting God to show up, expecting God to be in our midst. As Jordan said a second ago, when we praise the Lord, when we have thanksgiving, he enters into our midst by default. When we draw near to God, he draws near to us. Where two or more are gathered collectively in an alignment in his name, there he will be also. And so we can expect God to be with us. And we want more of that. I want more of that. I hope that you want more of that. I think we crave it and yearn for it. But we have to realize that manifestation comes with expectation. Manifestation of the Spirit, the tangible presence of God, comes with expectation. When we expect in faith and believe and trust that God is going to manifest himself among us, that we're going to experience God, whether in a thunderstorm and lightning and fire or in a gentle whisper. He's going to show up. He's going to be among us. He's going to manifest himself. So I hope that you are in alignment this morning. I like the way you talked back to D last week. I hope that you can continue that trend this week. All right? All right. <laughs> I love it. We have obviously been in this teaching series around the Holy Spirit, looking at the person, the presence, and the power that is the third person of the triune God, known as the Holy Spirit. We're begging this question, who is this familiar stranger? And what does he do? Who is the Spirit? What does the Spirit do? Who is this, as Francis Chan says, this forgotten God? Who is this forgotten person of the Trinity? Our longing as a community is to be a spirit-led people, led by the Spirit in our mind, by our thoughts, 
to be a spirit-filled people, to have hearts and souls that are filled and overflowing with the Spirit of God, and to be a spirit-empowered people demonstrating the reality of the kingdom of God here and now and demonstrating his power among us, seeking his presence together. In the first week of our teaching series, we laid out a basic theology of presence. The basic theology of presence, looking at the entire arc of the scriptures. God's presence is tangible and experienced always in a temple. God's presence is always in a temple. That our our bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit. We now, as the people of God, have access, direct access, to the manifest presence of God to the holiest of holies. The challenge for many of us, though we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, there are different layers to the temple. And many of us haven't accessed the holiest of holies yet. We just stay in the outer court. But we actually do have access and freedom to walk into with authority and with confidence, based on the language of Paul, the manifest presence of God, or the holiest of holies, where the fire of God is. We were able to kind of set a basic kind of high-level definition on who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? And I love it from Gordon Fee, who's a New Testament uh, charismatic theologian. He says, the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. God's empowering presence. In the second week, the teaching was on the Holy Spirit as a person. The Spirit has uh, personality and traits of personhood. The Spirit guides, knows, teaches, feels, comforts, and speaks all attributes of personhood. The Spirit is one we are to commune with and know intimately. Not just some energy or some kinetic force. We don't send good vibes. We pray to the real, tangible person of the Holy Spirit. That he would manifest himself in the life of people. We don't just send things sporadically. We pray, God in heaven, who is real and tangible and personal, intervene, show up, pour yourself out on this person's heart, life, and soul. We have access to the personal creator, God. The spirit is not some kinetic energy, power, or force. Now, though the spirit is a person in essence and character, the spirit is often experienced by his power or by his force. Similarly, when a person says that Michael Jordan was a force, Michael Jordan was a force. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, who, who, is, who is Michael Jordan? Who is that? You talking about the guy that played Creed? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no. That's Michael B. Jordan, okay? Michael Jordan is arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. He was a force that isn't literal, but it isn't any less true. Michael Jordan played with great force, power, and energy. It characterized the experience of the person. Same goes for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one to know and experience and to commune with. It speaks, it talks, it feels. But when we experience that person, it feels like a great force, a power, or energy. And last week, Dee taught on listening to the voice of God, listening to the voice of the Spirit, getting in a bit to what the Spirit does. We moved away from who the Spirit is, moving into what the Spirit does. The Spirit speaks through a variety of means, 
And the standard for knowing the voice of the Spirit is the Scriptures and historic global community of faith. The Spirit still speaks to this day, sometimes audibly, sometimes in a whisper. And the Scriptures exist so that we can be able to look to see is what the Spirit's saying in alignment with who God is and the character of God. And today, we continue our journey, keeping this in mind, friends, all of us, that our highest aim isn't to merely study the subject of the Holy Spirit, but to experience and encounter the real and tangible person of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to just study theologically the person of the Spirit. I want every single breathing soul in this room to encounter and experience the person of the Holy Spirit. That's my desire. Now, have you ever gotten a text message before that says, hey, we need to talk? Anybody? Some of you are like, I got one yesterday. I was terrified. Sometimes it's a boyfriend or girlfriend, a spouse, a friend. Maybe it's your mother. Hey, we need to talk. In John chapter 3, we see Jesus have his famous one-on-one conversation between a well-known, influential Jewish leader and teacher by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus shoots Jesus a text message and says, hey, man, we need to talk. I'm going to come at night. We're going to hang out together. I got to come. I got to talk to you. And they start having this dialogue about being, quote, unquote, born again. And Nicodemus is really confused, which makes sense due to the language, because Jesus says no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born again. And Nicodemus is like, well, that's tough luck because I can't go back into my, my mother's womb. That's, that's too cramped. All right, it's way, it's too, too tight of a space. That's not working. Okay? I can't get back in my mother's womb. So then Jesus goes on to share this key and central aspect of what the Holy Spirit does. It's going to blow Nicodemus's intellectual capacities away. Verse 5 and verse 6 of John chapter 3, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one, do you hear that? No one. Nada, not a single person, can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and, you can underline and, circle and, and the Spirit, or the pneuma, the Holy Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. No single person on the face of the planet can enter the kingdom of heaven without being born of the Spirit. So when Jesus is speaking of being born again, and some of us, let's be honest, you grew up in churches where you heard that phrase a lot. I'm born again. You know, you heard that? Born again. You're like, I don't really know what that means because I'm, you know, 37 years old and I'm not going backwards. What does that really mean? When Jesus is speaking of being born again, verse 5 and 6 are explaining what that means. It's explaining what it means to be born again. To be born again is to be made new. To be born again is to be renewed, or some say regenerated. To have a new 
life by the Spirit. This grace or this gift of God is of a literal new spirit in our soul. Not abstractly. Not some abstract It's a brand new literal spirit inside of you. When you are born again, you are renewed from the inside out. You are made new. You're given new life. You are regenerated. It's almost like you're, you know, you're an adult, but you go all the way back to the beginning again in spirit. And all things are new. Those who are in Christ Jesus, the new has come instantly. Boom, instantly. In a moment, the new has come. That's what it means to be born again. And one of the basic tenets of what the Holy Spirit does is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, gives new life. The Spirit gives new life. If you're walking in a dead and barren land, the Spirit wants to give you new life. If you're sleepwalking through life, and plenty of people are, the Spirit wants to awaken you to new life. You ever seen someone where literally over a matter of a week or two, they're a whole new person. Something happened in their life that just awakened them. And you're like, what happened to you, man? You were down in the dumps a month ago. Now you got a pep in your step. The Spirit wants to do that in our life forever and consistently and continuously. The Holy Spirit not only just gives new life as a single moment, but the Holy Spirit is the animator of life. The Holy Spirit animates or catalyzes life. It was the Ruach in the Hebrew Scriptures that gave life to the soul of Adam. The Spirit was breathed into Adam and new life was formed. Our spirit, friends, is what gives us life and animates us. There is this constant breath. Think about it. You breathe in and out without even knowing it. We have a spirit. Jesus dying on the cross, he released his what? Spirit. To be human, to be alive, means that you have a life-giving spirit inside of you. I heard a story the other day of someone who was given CPR and helped resuscitate someone back to life. And what happens in that moment of resuscitation? They, <gasps> why? Breath. Has come back in and now they're alive and they're living. Our spirit is what gives us life and animates us. And the soul, the human soul, the psyche, is the vehicle. The spirit is the gas. The problem is that our natural spirit, because of the disease that is sin, our natural spirit doesn't give everlasting or eternal life. Our spirit's constantly failing us. Now, I drive a Volkswagen Passat that requires diesel to function properly. If I were to put regular unleaded gasoline into the tank of my car, the car wouldn't function properly for very long before the car would die. It might go for a little bit. It might start. It might go for a little bit of time. But for it to properly function, it requires diesel. Now, both diesel and gasoline 
are fuel. But only one animates the car the way it was supposed to be animated. All of us have a spirit, but not all of us have new life from the Holy Spirit. And the call of God is that we would experience new life in him by way of his spirit. Some of you guys drive clunker cars. I know you do. I've seen them. I'm like, I don't know how that thing's still kicking it. To be honest, it's always got issues and problems. It's not functioning properly. Why? You're frustrated because it's not functioning the way it was meant to function. A lot of us are like clunker cars in our own human life. Constantly in the shop. Constantly calling up the mechanic, calling up daddy-o. Daddy! My car is leaking some fluid. I don't know what it is. My brakes are making a funny noise. Everybody that drives a Ford in here knows what I'm talking about. Because I've driven a Ford before. Always got problems. 50,000 miles. My alternator is already messed up. Transmission shot. Many of us as human beings are like clunkers, man. And God's like, I want to give you something new. I want to get you functioning the way you're meant to function. Get you moving the way you're meant to be moved. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit animates us and gives us new life. John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. Point blank, period. It is the Spirit of God who gives Zoe life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. And when we see this word life in the New Testament, the word is zoe, as I just mentioned, it doesn't just mean eternal life from a chronological standpoint. It means a substantive, deep, rich, abundant quality of life. The Spirit is the one who bestows that zoe life to us in our inner being, within our soul. The phrase born again in the original Greek language can also be translated from above. From above. When you are born again or made new, the Spirit of God descends from above, which speaks to the language of the dove descending from heaven onto Jesus, or the Spirit descends like a dove onto Jesus. The Spirit descends on us from above, making his home within you. The Spirit is very earthly. The Spirit is always earthly. The Spirit is hovering, eroding over the waters in creation. The Spirit descends to the earthly realm. The Spirit is the way in which we're able to tap into the supernatural realm in the physical realm. The Spirit is very earthly. And the Spirit descends on us and makes his home within you. We see this is the image, the human soul. The Spirit comes from above down into our heart and soul and animates us with new life. There is no other source that provides this animation. A lot of us are trying to put poison into our life based on false promises that it's going to animate us and it's not there is one promised spirit that will animate us and give us life and that is the holy spirit 
Nothing else. I was reading Paul a few weeks ago in the New Testament. He talks about so many people worshiping mute idols. We worship things we see, touch, and feel, but they don't speak. They don't move us. They don't catalyze us. The Spirit we can't see. The Spirit can blow like the wind, but the Spirit speaks, moves, and pushes us and catalyzes us in directions. Think about the wind we saw this past week. We see evidence of the Spirit in our own life, just like we see evidence of the wind moving trees. The same thing happens in our life. The Holy Spirit descends upon our human soul. This experience, and it is an experience, it's an encounter. It's often known as conversion or salvation. In fact, the mark of salvation, hear this, the mark of salvation, because most of us, we talk about salvation. I'm like, what do you mean by salvation? And most of us don't know. We just think we're saved from hell. No, 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 no. Salvation is actually not just being saved from, but being saved for, being saved to. Salvation and conversion in this moment is when the Spirit indwells us. And we see this literal moment in our own life happen. The moment the Spirit indwells and comes into our life, that moment is called salvation. That moment is called conversion, making all things new. Listen, salvation, we talk about being saved, doesn't exist apart from the Holy Spirit's indwelling in our life. It doesn't exist. The primary mark of salvation in the New Testament is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit in you, you are not walking in salvation. Gordon Fee, again, says the experience of the Spirit was how the early believers came to receive the salvation Christ had brought. It's the Spirit, man. Honestly, if you haven't experienced or encountered the Holy Spirit, oh, man, first of all, you're missing out. But number number two, don't walk around acting like you're saved. Because the primary mark of salvation is experiencing the Holy Spirit. Now, it looks different for every person. But if you can look back to a moment in your life and go, man, something shifted. Something moved me in a different way. That is the mark of salvation and conversion. And it's just the beginning. Most of us see it as the end. It's the beginning of the journey. Then we work out our salvation in fear and trembling in the language of Paul. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 and 10 says, You, however, are not of in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. I love that language of living in us, as though we are some house or some home. The Spirit lives in us. And if anyone, check this out, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But... If Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness by the blood of Jesus when we put our faith and trust in Him. But anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. And that is God's ultimate aim, for us to belong to Christ for us to belong to him, to be in union with him, to be one with him, to be in intimacy with him. 
Another phrase for this moment, this conversion moment, this salvation moment where the Spirit moves in is called the baptism of the Spirit. All the charismatics in the room are like, that's like my favorite phrase. (laughs) Baptism of the Spirit. Love it. Others of you are like, never heard it before. I got dunked when I was like five in water. That's the only baptism I know about. But this moment where the Spirit indwells us can often be called the baptism of the Spirit. Baptism means immersion or submersion, specifically as it pertains to water. Okay? To be baptized is to be immersed in. But I really like the language of moving in. The baptism of the Spirit is God moving in. I love that imagery, especially when we see this constant metaphor of a home or abiding or dwelling or living in all through the New Testament. However, a principal aspect of baptism in the ancient Jewish world had to do with being adopted into a family. And this is another primary part of what happens when the Spirit moves into our inner home or baptizes us. He is bringing you and I into the family of God. The only way in the first century to become Jewish or to become Jewish in the ancient world was through sacrifice. Jesus. Think about the trajectory of this. Sacrifice. Circumcision. Okay? Circumcision. The Old Testament prophesies about circumcision of the heart in the New Testament. And baptism. And you would have these Jewish proselytes who did not grow up Jewish ethnically, but they were like, I want to join the family. They would have to go through this process. Sacrifice, circumcision, and baptism. For us as followers of the way of Jesus, what happens? We trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. Our hearts are circumcised by the Spirit. And we are baptized into the family of God. You see the continuity here. To to be baptized in the Spirit isn't just this trance. It's you are being adopted into the family of God. Think about stories of adoption. Think about it. The early church was well known for taking care of of orphans and kids that were kicked to the curb, literally babies. They were kicked to the curb. The church would take them in. Adopted. How many of you guys have seen... um, the movie that is called um, Instant Family. Oh, I cried like a baby. <laughs> Weeped. The moment those kids are in that courtroom, at the very end, and he grants them adoption as sons and daughters of that new family, what happens? They celebrate. They take photos. It's a moment. Their lives change forever. The same thing, friends, happens when we experience the Spirit of God in us. We were adopted into the family of God with inheritance, co-heirs with Christ Jesus. He becomes our brother. We share in the eternal glory of Jesus and in some respects are seated with him at the right hand of the Father. And now we're representatives by the spirit of that family, almost as though a people of the future in the present representing what is to come. Come on. Adopted into the family of God. Romans 8, 
Verse 14 through 16, we'll continue. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves. And many of us are slaves. We're slaves to our flesh. We're slaves to the desires of our heart that are conflicting. We're going to talk about this. We're going to do a teaching series on what it means to be human next month. It's going to be awesome. But many of us are enslaved to our fleshly desires. But you're no longer a slave so that you live in fear again or fear in anxiety again. I think is a better word for that. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship or your adoption to daughtership. And by him, by the spirit in us, we cry, Abba, Father. By the spirit in us, we cry, Daddy. What a sign of intimacy. What a sign of closeness. We don't just say, oh, God, good to see you today, sir. I hope you're well. I'm going to be working for you in my cubicle. If you need anything, shoot me an email, all right? No, no, it's daddy, father. We cry out because of spirit in us. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are, not we might be, we are. That's an imperative. We are God's children. There is no question about it. When the Spirit dwells within us, we are God's children. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. And listen, friends, there is no junior Holy Spirit. There is no different levels of the Spirit. If you are in the family of God, if you're seven years old, if you're 70 years old, you got access to the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Same Spirit. Gordon Fee continues, To be saved in the Pauline view means to become part of the people of God, who by the Spirit are born into God's family and therefore join to one another as one body, whose gatherings in the Spirit form them into God's temple. There we see that adoption language again. Now, you tracking so far? Okay, good. It's kind of two parts of my teaching today, so just bear with me. Because the Spirit animates life, the Spirit of God, once He has moved in, doesn't just come in and sit down. The home is now His. Paul says, your body is not your own. He comes in and He gets to work cleaning, purifying, and sanctifying our life in such a way that is helping us experience not just life eternal, as I mentioned earlier, in the sense of forever, but also in the quality of life experienced here and now. The Spirit goes room by room, purifying your soul, cleansing your motivations, purifying your mind, convicting you of dark places in your heart, Reminding you who you actually are. Speaking to you and saying, that is not who you are. You are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. You are my daughter. You're my son. This behavior doesn't align with your new given identity. Stop that. Michael Jordan should have never played baseball. Why? He's a basketball player, man. You know? Like, we are to function based on who God has said we are to be. 
sons and daughters of the Most High God. You know, you can get the keys to a home, own it, and that house be a wreck. You ever flipped a house before? Or watch HGTV? Just watch HGTV. There's a lot of spiritual significance there. Get the key. Watch Good Bones, okay? Get the keys and walk in. It's like, well, this thing's a mess. You know? That's our life. We think sometimes because the God's got the keys, we're like, we're good, huh? We're good. Spirit's in me. I'm, I'm straight. Mm, honey, your house is still dirty. You still got termites. Foundations busted. You got fires that have happened over the years that have messed up the sheetrock. Paint's peeling. You got rodents living in your house. The moment of conversion is just God saying, I own this now. It's mine. We think that's the end. Uh-uh, that's the beginning of a cleansing process, of a sanctifying process, making you new, renewing you, restoring you, so that you look like those homes do at the very end of the show when we walk into glory. But you've been invited into the process of restoration and renewal. And what God's doing in your heart, he's doing in the world, in all of creation. Comes in, he says, I'm going to renew all things. So the spirit does three things when he comes into our life. He gives new life. First of all, he gives new life. He gives new identity in adoption. You're given a new identity. We belong to Christ. And keep in mind, the idea of identity is to who or what do you belong or to who or whom or what are you one with? That's the nature of identity. And third thing is that he sanctifies. And all this happens when we put our faith in the person of Jesus and the story that is the gospel. We are given, friends, access to a continuous, animating flow of presence and power infused life made possible only by the indwelling and the moving in of the Holy Spirit, or as some people say, the Holy Ghost. That is how we experience new life. Jesus says that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Dr. Tony Evans says the spirit not only gives you life, he keeps that life pumping. The reason you have access to God is that the Holy Spirit is always pumping rivers of living water through you. So the life of God is not only in you, it is always operative. It's not a static single moment. It's a continuous operating flow of rivers of living water flowing in our heart and in our life from the inner place out. Now, there is much debate on the language of baptism of the Spirit. Most Reformed scholars believe that there is one single baptism that when you surrender to Jesus, you experience that one baptism at that moment. But most Pentecostals believe that there is a second baptism of the Spirit, also referred to as a second blessing. One baptism when you are made new or regenerated, and a second baptism where the Spirit pours Himself out on you as a second blessing, usually expressed in the speaking of tongues. Two different perspectives. Now, 
I believe it to be semantics in some regard. And I think if you read the book of Acts, it seems as though there are two baptisms. There's a baptism of water and there's a baptism of the spirit. One happens in the beginning and one happens later on in the person's journey. Some believers walking around in the book of Acts who hadn't been baptized in the spirit yet, but they were believers. They had um, John's baptism, but they had not been baptized in the spirit. But if you read Paul in the New Testament, he speaks of one single baptism and doesn't prescribe tongues in conjunction with spirit baptism. However, it seems to me that there is one baptism, yet over the course of a person's life, there are moments of increased awareness and appropriation of what has already been given. There is one baptism, multiple fillings. We'll get to that in just a second. You hear me? One baptism, multiple fillings. Now, I'll be honest. I'm not totally 100% convinced in this doctrine. Not sure. Part of me is like, ah, there might be a second blessing. There might be a second outpouring of the Spirit. I'm wrestling with that personally. But it seems as though it primarily is about appropriating what's already been given to us. Another charismatic theologian, Amos Young, says there is a sense in which we have already received the Spirit. There is a sense in which we are continuing to receive more and more of the Spirit. And there's a sense in which we are yet to fully receive the Spirit. Just because we have already received the Spirit doesn't mean that there is not more of the Spirit to be received in some way. Most of us simply don't appropriate what has already been deposited. For instance, you could have an endless supply of money deposited into your account and still live in abject poverty. You can have an endless supply of food given to you, but are eating breadcrumbs. Doesn't mean it all hasn't been given. You just haven't appropriated or taken advantage of the access to more. We choose that on our own. Tony Evans goes on to say, you say, I have the Holy Spirit. He's baptized me, yet my river is not flowing. Well, that's because you have cut off the tap. It's not because the river is not available. You're like, I'm so bankrupt. You just ain't been to the bank. Go pull some money out. You got access. But it takes time to go to the bank. You got to go. I get so tired of people, honestly, walking around. I'm just, I'm so dry. So dry. What's going on? When, When was the last time you spent, like, Intense amount of time with God. It's been a minute. Hello? It's not that difficult. Time in the presence, I promise you, access more of the Spirit. The closer you get, the bigger He becomes. When we cut off the tap, so to speak, this is what is referred to in the New Testament as quenching the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. Paul says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. This is failing to appropriate the access we have been given. Keep in mind, when the Spirit comes in, we are now one with and united with Christ. We are no longer our own, as I mentioned. 
1 Corinthians 6, 17, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Again, notice the identity language. Despite that oneness with Christ, and despite the spirit indwelling our home, so to speak, we can live in such a way, and some of us are right now, we can live in such a way where we are neglecting or disregarding his presence in our life. I can be married to Jordan, and I love being married to my wife. I can be married to Jordan. We can live in the same home, yet we never commune, never talk. I never hear her. She never speaks. She can be upstairs in the back room, and I don't even see her. Is she still in my home? Yes. But am I experiencing her tangible presence? No. In fact, I'm living as though she's not there. She is there but I don't see her, I don't talk to her, and I can't hear her. And that's what it means to quench the Spirit. The Spirit is in us. The Spirit is living in our home, and yet we don't see Him. We don't hear Him. We don't commune with Him. We are made new. We are saved. We are just ignoring the abundance of life that is in the other room. This is why in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul gives the imperative or the command. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Keep in mind that these are Spirit-indwelled believers, baptized believers. And he says, be filled. Be filled. The crazy part about this language of be filled is that the tense of the phrase in the original language, be filled, it is in the active present tense. So it can be translated literally, be continuously filled with the Spirit. Be continuously filled with the Spirit. Baptized believers, Christians, and he's like, be filled. Be filled with the Spirit. Be continuously filled. So, there are a couple things that we can assume from this passage, and we'll kind of use this to wrap our time up together this morning. A few things we can assume. The first thing is that we can be saved and not be filled. Indwelling and filling are different. Again, my wife can live in my home and dwell there, but that doesn't mean I'm experiencing the fullness of what that means and looks like. The second thing is that being filled is an experience for ourselves and others. If you keep reading the next verse, verse 19 and verse 20, you will see that the implication of being filled with the Spirit is a communal experience. Singing songs, speaking hymns to one another, singing praises and thanksgiving to God from the heart, and mutually submitting ourselves to one another. It's not just a single individual me and Jesus experience. No, 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 no. That's not New Testament discipleship. It, it impacts others. When we are filled, we exude the fruit of the Spirit to others. We exude it. People will know if you've been filled with the Spirit. I promise you that. People will know it. They'll see it. And they're like, yo, something's off. Something's off. Something's really good off. What's going on? You're exuding the gifts, not the gifts, the character traits, the fruit of the Spirit. You might be functioning out of your gifts, but the primary expression of what it means to be filled with the Spirit isn't demonstration of gifts. It's actually the character 
that is produced in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And it's testifying to the person of Jesus. That is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. I know plenty of people have got gifts. They use their gifts. And they ain't exuding none of those fruits. To be filled exudes those fruits. It's not just an individual experience. It impacts others. Simon Ponsonby says, unless we are filled by the living waters of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus promised would flow out, not in, we will never be the blessing God intended us to be. We will never water and transform the dead and barren deserts around us into life. The rivers of living water flow out, not in. The third thing we can assume is that being filled is surrendering more of ourselves to the Spirit. You want to be filled with the Spirit? What areas of your life have you not surrendered? You surrender more of yourself to the Spirit. The age-old saying goes, it isn't that we must have more of the Spirit. It's that the Spirit must have more of us. Ponzinbee goes on to say, when the Bible speaks of being filled with the Holy Spirit, it is saying that one is consumed, taken over, impregnated, saturated, complete, and replete with God's presence and power. To be filled with the Holy Spirit leaves no room to be filled with anything else. Christine Kane, if your heart is so full of yourself, you haven't got room for anyone else. We need less of us and more of him. Being filled, friends. I'm going to get Anderson to come on up. Being filled with the Spirit starts from a place of being emptied. So many of us, again, we want to be filled, but we haven't emptied. To be filled, it requires emptying. You want to be set on fire by God, then you have to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Fire comes down on altars of sacrifice and surrender. You want to experience the fullness of the Spirit, you've got to surrender. You've got to deplete what it is you're holding on to. You have to come to a place of letting go. Because when you're walking around holding all this stuff in your arms, in your hands, you're not going to be able to experience more fullness of the Spirit. you got to release it to God. Many of us in this room, we're not filled because we have no more room. So many things are taking our attention and our time. Again, some of them are good things, but they're mute. They don't speak, and they're not life-giving. Often they're life-sucking. Good things can take life sometimes. We have filled our soul with other things. So my question to all of us in this room is what are you filled with today? What is it that you're filled with in this room? What things in your life are taking up every aspect of your soul? What good things, honestly, are taking up all the room? What relationships are taking up all the room? Well, we're looking at other people to provide us that abundant life. And it's not working. Or there's a slow leak. What are the things that we're filling ourselves with? So we have to ask the question, how does one become filled? How does one become filled with the Spirit? If the Spirit does already live within us, and then He does. We are filled, friends, by being stirred. How many of you made homemade chocolate milk before? Homemade chocolate milk, big old glass, white milk. 
get that big old chocolate syrup container out, whatever, Hershey's squeezing bottle, and just squeeze the tar out of it. And that chocolate just goes to the very bottom of that milk glass, and you see it collect at the bottom. That's the moment of indwelling. Spirit coming in, dwelling, abiding. But how does that glass become full? It requires that spoon to start stirring it up. And you know what happens when you stop stirring and let that glass sit for a while? The chocolate starts to separate again. Listen, friends, some of us, honestly, the Spirit's in us, but we haven't been filled. We need to be stirred. We need to be stirred by the Spirit. And I think that one of the ways that we can be stirred is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. I wonder if not only does asking and faith fill us, but also singing songs to the Lord. Songs stir the soul. Songs have a way of stirring us in our imagination. I wonder if there is a reverse effect here. When you sing songs of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord, there's a stirring begins to happen. When you do it together, a stirring starts to happen. There's a filling that begins to happen. So if we want to be filled, if this morning you want to be filled, we must ask and trust first. We must say, come Holy Spirit. Not as though the Spirit isn't in our home, but it's saying the Spirit's in the back room. Come on down. Come on down. Or we go find the Spirit in the room. You know, one of the reasons why we don't go seek the Spirit out in the house of our heart? Because He's in a room we don't want to go in. He's in a dark room, a dirty room that you don't want to go in. That we don't want to go in. We're terrified of the room. And He's there at the door knocking. Let me in. Well, no, 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 no. Come on down here where you've already done some work. He's like, I'm standing at the door of the room. We've got to go clean. Go in with courage, boldness. And that's where the surrender takes place. We have to empty ourselves and let him go in and cleanse us. Because guys, listen, we are in a moment in time in history where human beings are not experiencing joy, happiness, and life and peace. We're craving it. We're trying to find it from so many different places. It's not producing the results it promises. That's how sin works. It overpromises and underdelivers. But this morning, I believe that God wants to fill every person in this room, stir every heart in this room afresh. Some of you might have come in with hardened heart. Or you're honestly, your heart can't see. It's walking in darkness. You're existing, but you're not experiencing fullness of life. But I believe that God wants to fill us.